0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, nurse practitioner Dr. Christina Swiner, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Heidi Burns, and social worker Sima Khan. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jessica Pierce to discuss suicidal ideation and self-injurious behaviors. Thank you
1: for joining us today, Dr. Pierce. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Pierce received her bachelor's degree in creative writing from Johns Hopkins University, her master's degree in medical anthropology from the University College London, and her MD at the University of Colorado. She completed an internship in general pediatrics at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, psychiatry residency at the University of Washington in Seattle, and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Pierce's clinical interests include medically complex children, eating disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma-informed care. She is active in medical education and advocacy focused on child welfare system and asylum refugee care. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Dr. Pierce, let's start very basic and broad. What is suicidal ideation and
2: what is the difference between active and passive? Suicidal ideation is thinking about suicide, thinking about ending one's life. Uh, We're thinking about not wanting to live any longer. Active suicidal ideation is Having a plan or an intent to actually act on your plan and your thoughts. And passive suicidal ideation is thoughts that are generally ever-present. Sometimes they come and go, but you don't really have any intent to act on them or specific plans of what you might do to perpetrate self-harm or end your life.
0: Thank you for differentiating between active and passive thoughts there. I think when we meet patients and families who are experiencing these, it kind of scares a lot of people. And having that differentiation helps us in that long-term plan and treatment of these patients. Can you speak a little bit to the neurobiology behind suicidality?
2: Sure. Like the neurobiology for most things within psychiatry, suicidality is really complex. It involves interactions between genes, genetics, environment, a person's um, own physiology and biologic factors. And there are lots of things that we still don't understand about the neurobiology of suicide. But there have been studies looking at autopsies of people who have died by suicide. And we see differences at the cellular level in patients who have died by suicide compared to patients who died by other means. We see differences at the neurotransmitter level, particularly with uh, serotonin, but also norepinephrine and dopamine. And then even on studies like functional MRI, where you can look at how a brain is working in individuals who have suicidal thoughts or have engaged in suicidal behavior, we see structural changes and functional differences when we're looking at brains that are coping with suicidal thinking. Thanks,
3: Dr. Pierce. I think that's really interesting to sort of think beyond the way our mind works and, and the real biology behind it and, and you know, some of the things that might be happening on a cellular level um, in these patients to help us sort of understand and normalize a little bit that, you know, this process is uh, is something that is truly related to our genes and related not only to kind of the way our mind works, but our biology and our background and our genetics too. So now that we have a definition for suicidal ideation and kind of a better understanding of what it means when someone is actively suicidal versus passively suicidal, how about we talk a little bit about something that kind of gets a little bit confusing, the idea of self-injurious behaviors and self-harm and kind of how that compares to actual suicidal ideation.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great distinction to make. You know, we talk about self-injurious behavior or SIB. Sometimes we talk about non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI. And that comes in a lot of different forms. And what we're talking about there is essentially just methods of harming oneself on purpose. And the reasons behind that vary a lot from individual to individual. People will sometimes self-harm using cutting, so using razors, knives, blades, even simple household objects like paper clips or pencils. People can engage in self-harm with scratching, just using your, your own fingernails. Sometimes people will use erasers from pencils uh, to scrape their own skin. We see burning, pinching. These are all things that a person can do with relatively little access to anything other than, you know, their own hands or fingers or simple common items and cause self-injury of various degrees and reasons people might do this would be some people say i just wanted to feel something and you know when i harm myself i feel pain and then i know that i'm alive or some people might use it to displace other types of pain you know they're feeling significant emotional pain so they engage in some sort of self-harm that displaces that pain from emotion to a physical sensation. Sometimes people self-harm as a means of self-punishment, and whether that's coming from their own thoughts, inferiority thoughts, or low self-esteem, or if that's because they are hearing negative thoughts about themselves from people around them. So there are a lot of different reasons and different ways in which people might self-harm. But the underlying theme is that they are causing injury on purpose. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're at greater risk to attempt suicide. We do know that the two are related. Like most things in psychiatry, it's a complex relationship. Um, Certainly, people who engage in self-harm should be considered to be at higher risk for having suicidal thoughts or engaging in suicidal behaviors, but it's not a direct correlate that if you engage in self-harm, you will definitely someday be suicidal or act on your suicidal thoughts. Thanks for differentiating
3: that. I think sometimes, especially if you're a provider or someone who's come in contact with someone who's had self-injurious behaviors, it can be a bit confusing to figure out, as, you know, is this something I should be alarmed about in a sense of having a, an imminent risk for suicide? Um, and I, like you said, I think it's quite complex. And there's some research out there that talks about the idea that if you sort of have crossed a threshold into self-harm behaviors, that that may somehow make you more at risk uh, for having a, a suicide attempt in the future. Um, so it kind of There's a bunch of different ideas out there and and research that's still going into this behavior. Dr. Burns, I kind of
0: want to jump off of that a little bit, and maybe we can make a little bit of a distinction. So we see self-injurious behaviors not only in the thought of self-harm, but also we see like our developmentally delayed population who self-injure for, I guess, lack of a better term. And can you, Dr. Pierce, kind of differentiate where the concern is and how we help parents understand that aspect of things.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, certainly... Patients who um, are somewhere on the neurodevelopmental spectrum may engage in self-harm as a means of self-stimulation. And self-harm, really, when you boil it down, it's a coping strategy. It's a maladaptive coping strategy. It's not one we want people to engage in because the result is they are injured in some way, probably both physically and emotionally by doing it. So I I can't really think of an instance in which self-harm is not concerning at all, but there are degrees of self-harm, and you have to consider the context. And I think for parents, thinking about your child being injured in any way, and certainly at their own hands, is really frightening and something that, of course, you're going to want to intervene in. I think where providers can be helpful is putting the self-harm in perspective and understanding you know, what's driving it, how serious is it, And what is it telling us about the distress level of your child and what we need to do to intervene to help them feel better or redirect their emotion so that they use a different, more adaptive coping strategy so that their first instinct is not I feel bad or I feel nothing. I want to cut so that I feel better or I feel something. And instead, we direct them to a coping strategy that's more adaptive, like listening to music, writing, talking to somebody. So I I think for parents, the take-home message is self-injurious behavior is never normal, but it is common. And it's not always an emergency. And it's something that, you know, talking to providers about, we can assess what is the real threat level here and what do we need to do to help this child adapt more constructively.
1: I really appreciate that perspective, Dr. Pierce, of, you know, what can a parent do if their child is self injuring because it is frightening and concerning. And, you know, parents are uncertain of what to do. And I think it's engaging your care team, um, engaging your child as well of kind of what's going on, you know, why. What are you feeling? You know, I think providing those opportunities for other distraction or engagement around those behaviors is really important, too. I know a lot of DBT focuses as well on intense ways to manage those intense emotions. And so kind of like maybe even snapping a rubber band or holding an ice cube, right, that's going to provide you that intense stimulation that cutting would provide, you know, so kind of removing or finding an alternative behavior, that um, coping strategy to move away from that maladaptive coping and, you know, I, I throw out, we throw out a lot of acronyms, right? So DBT is dialectical behavior therapy, which is a form of psychotherapy that really focuses on um, promoting positive coping. It was developed by Marsha Linehan and oftentimes, you know, thrown in together with borderline personality disorder. But actually, DBT is evidence-based for depression and many other diagnoses as well. And it can be a really useful tool for families because it's often co-taught where your child is getting intervention and then you're also getting um, resources that your child is learning or the strategies that your child is learning. So we can share more information about that as well so that families can
2: access that and hopefully learn more about ways to support their child. Simon, you said something that I really liked, which is when parents are worried, they need to engage their care team. And I, it really goes back to one of my standard lines for kids and families in psychiatry, which is never worry alone. And so if there's something that is, doesn't feel right, isn't right, and certainly if you find out your child is self-injuring, even if you discover it just because you happen to catch a glimpse of it when they had their sleeve rolled up, Um, It's not something to just sit and stew about by yourself. And so never worry alone means, you know, talk about it. Talk about it with your child. Talk about it with their care team if you have one. And if you don't have one, go find one. The school can be a good resource for that. But never worry alone, especially when we're talking about self-injury and suicidal thoughts because you don't want to get to the point where it's too late.
0: Dr. Pierce, how would a parent talk to a child if they discovered that they were self-harming? What are some good questions or ways to approach a child?
2: I think the first thing to know is that talking about suicide does not make suicidal thoughts worse. And people very often worry about that, that if they bring it up or they ask about it or they go into it in any kind of detail, they're going to give the person ideas about suicide and we have a lot of research that shows that's just not the case. And in fact, talking about it is a really key part of executing a safety assessment and putting a plan into place. And so, you know, parents and kids have their own language and it's different from family to family, but my advice is to be really open and straightforward about it. You know, if if you see something that looks like self-injury on your child, in a private place where siblings are not around, ask them about it. You know, I, I noticed this thing on your arm. What happened there? Can you tell me about that? Be open-ended about it so that you're not immediately assuming it was self-harm. Um, or if you hear from, you know, a neighbor or a concerned teacher that that this is happening, you just have to have the conversation bluntly and say, you know, I heard this is going on. Tell me, Tell me about that. Tell me what you're thinking about that. Tell me uh, what What goes through your mind, how you're feeling when you do that and we'll see if we can find a way to help you with that. I think there's
1: also a lot of resources that families can access as well and, and it can be really challenging because the internet's an overwhelming place um, and, and not all resources are reputable, right? So I often find that the National Alliance for Mental Illness is a great place to go for education and support and guidance on what to do and the questions to ask as well because, so many people worry alone, and I really like that reflection of, of kind of tapping into other supports um, because this is confusing and it is scary. And part of the goal here is also to kind of help um, providers and families that listen to this podcast know where they can go and who are the people that they can use for support. Uh, the University of Michigan also has a lot of good education resources as well on their website. Thank you, Simon and
0: Dr. Pierce, for that insight. And I think in this next episode, after we wrap up talking about some of the things here, we're going to get into some of the nitty gritties about safety assessments and safety planning, and we'll have more tips and tricks in that episode. But I did want to jump kind of back and add maybe a little bit of a tangent. But Dr. Pierce, you reflected on how individuals on that developmental spectrum can self-harm for other reasons. And I wanted to just add, I guess, a little comment on that and say, you know, sometimes when we are working with individuals who are on that neurodevelopmental spectrum at a different place than somebody who may be self-harming for reasons that they want to harm themselves, they may be indicating that something else is going on. So if that's suddenly something that's developing, um, getting a medical assessment being like, oh, are they in pain for some reason? Are we missing something medical going on that needs to be addressed in a different manner?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, not only is self harm a means of feeling, but it can be a means of communicating. And so even with younger kids who are neurotypical, if they don't have the language or the emotional understanding to uh, recognize how they're feeling and tell someone else about it, it may look like headbanging or pinching themselves. And that may be a way of communicating, hey, I'm in distress, I need some help. So I, I think that's a great point. And how we intervene may depend a lot on what is driving, what is driving the behavior.
0: Now that we're done with our little tangent there, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, what we as providers are allowed to disclose to parents and guardians when a youth is reporting suicidal ideation.
2: Yeah. So this is a great question, and it comes up a lot in the pediatric setting. And you know, there are privacy laws for kids and adolescents, especially age 12 and above. And in the state of Michigan, um, you know, there are a lot of things that a provider cannot disclose to parents. Uh, maybe a lot is overstating it, but there are some things, and, and for good reason. Um, you know, aspects of sexual health, things that really need to be kept private in order to maintain that relationship, where the patient will talk openly with the provider about what's going on. One really clear exception is when the the patient's safety is at risk. And so it it is probably the exception to not disclose to parents when you learn that a child is self-harming or has s- significant suicidal thoughts, because there needs to be an intervention that involves the broader system around the child in order to help them succeed. And so what I tell kids is, I always tell them if I'm going to disclose to their parents that that they've been engaging in self-harm or that they're having suicidal thoughts. And I explain the reason that we need to protect their safety and that probably on some level these behaviors that they're engaging in are are their way of saying, I need help, and that's what we're doing is we're helping them. And so I think, um, you know, providers worry a lot about crossing that line, and, and it's good to give thought to that line, but really at its core, if the child's safety is at risk, you need to communicate with the parent. Thanks so much, Dr. Pierce. I think that helps providers
1: know that it is okay to break confidentiality in those situations because we really need to work collaboratively and engage families as well um, in maintaining safety for an adolescent that may present to an emergency room. I think linked to that, you know, a question people often have is what can people do to say or support someone endorsing suicidal ideation?
2: Yeah, and, and that's a big question, and it depends a lot on the situation. But I think we've talked about some of it already is listen. Ask follow up questions. I think that piece gets missed a lot. You know, somebody hears, oh, I'm having suicidal thoughts, and then the recipient of that information is maybe paralyzed and doesn't move forward. And you need to know more about what that means. Are you having active thoughts? Are these passive thoughts? Are they chronic, meaning they've been there for a long time or are they brand new? Do you have a plan? Ask the follow-up questions. And then as far as support goes, you know let the person know, you know I hear you, I- I'm so sorry to hear that you're feeling that way. Let's work together to, to come up with a solution, uh, or at least resources to help you cope with these thoughts. Um, and that's where that don't worry alone comes into play, and you need to get a broader system involved.
3: And I think it's worth mentioning that you know we recognize, especially if this was a conversation between a parent and a child, that sometimes you're overwhelmed by the the realization that this is happening to your child and your own fight or flight system might kick in and take over. And, you know, like Dr. Pierce said, you may kind of feel paralyzed, not sure what to do next and, you know, having a rush of emotion. And so sometimes it is good to think ahead and, and try to figure out those ways that you know how to self-soothe and You know, what can you do in those moments that you might be having with your child, or, you know, if you're having a patient that that comes to you with this, it can be really distressing. And, you know, how do you stay in that moment and support them and um, at the same time soothe yourself so that you can keep the child safe?
1: Dr. Burns, I think you bring up a really important point. I think it's really hard for medical professionals that aren't in the mental health field to support someone with suicidal ideation. And, kind of a question for the group are there any recommendations or things that, you know, medical professionals can say? to a child that's endorsing suicidal thoughts? Because I think even providers feel very scary. Nurses going into the room kind of feel scared, like they're going to make the situation worse. You know, What can we do to help our staff and um, colleagues also feel like they're capable of caring for an individual in the emergency room with suicidal thoughts?
0: I think in thinking of this from like a nursing perspective, I talk to a lot of nurses, and I experienced it myself as a new grad, um, being a nurse at the bedside, taking care of these patients is, Sometimes you're so scared to say the wrong thing or not sure what to say when you walk in that room post-suicide attempt and you're caring for this patient maybe on the medical side of things. And I think just remembering that these patients are people too and talking about things that don't have anything to do with why they're there in the moment can be a distraction for all that emotional distress that they're feeling you know talking about things that bring them joy or things they like to do and finding out what those are because asking something about school may not be the right question and it's okay if you ask that question, and be like, hey, how's school going? And they're like, you know, school is why I'm here and why I attempted suicide. Okay, that's not a safe topic right now. Let's talk about, you know, your favorite video game, your favorite movie, those things that, you know, may bring a smile to their face in a moment that is really hard and often filled with a lot of mixed emotions.
2: Yeah, I think that's great advice, Christina. And I, I think. One thing I often tell kids who disclose suicidal thoughts, especially if it's the first time that they've disclosed that, is is to say, thank you for sharing that with me. I know, know that's a really personal thing, and I appreciate you trusting me enough to tell me that. And then I would say to providers who maybe don't know what the next step is, that's okay. And it's okay to even tell that to the patient. You know, you can say, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm not sure what the next best step is, but I'm going to talk to somebody who really specializes in this stuff and see how we can help you with that. And, and then, like you said, Christina, transition to something else. Um, in the meantime, can I get you something to drink? You know, do you want to talk about your favorite Netflix show? Something like that. Humor can go a long way sometimes. It's true. For
1: those that you don't know, Dr. Pierce loves a good joke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. In fact, I, I demand that every patient tell me a joke.
1: We might have to
0: demand one at the end of the episode.
2: (laughs) So we've talked
3: about a big topic today and lots of details around it. Are there any other thoughts?
1: I think this was a really rich conversation about a topic that's really hard, and I think something that scares a lot of medical professionals. And so I really, you know, I think it's breaking it down, right? So kind of taking it step by step. Um, and I really think it's important for us to be able to, to kind of distinguish um, when someone's having those suicidal thoughts and what we do. So I'm, I'm glad that we could kind of start this off. And I know we're going to kind of keep this conversation going on, on next steps in our next episode. Maybe we can
0: end with that joke, Dr. Pierce.
2: Oh, sure. Um, okay, do you want to hear my knock knock joke or my Pokemon joke?
0: I'm going to go with Pokemon one.
2: Okay. Why can't you take Pokemon into the bathroom with you? Because he'll peek at you. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of groans happening right now. (laughs) These are children's hospital jokes.
1: (laughs) Yep. Keep it G, maybe PG. (laughs) We know our audience well.
3: (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Pierce. We truly appreciate your time and expertise and... Dad jokes.
2: <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me,
3: and thank you to everyone that tuned in this week. And to nurses, social
0: workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs and CES at uofmhealth.org/slash-breaking-down-mental-health. You're able to do this anytime within three
3: years of the initial air date. We hope that you'll join us next time when we will again be joined by Dr. Pierce, as well as pick the brain of our wonderful social worker, Sima Khan, and discuss safety assessments and safety planning. See you then.